Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. I have a book that I want to commend to you that if you wanted to... uh have a textbook for this class, it would be a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It's listed on your notes. By the way, I passed out some notes and some of the major scriptures and some of the major principles I'm going to be sharing are already written down. So if you want to just take notes on that sheet, um, you won't have to be writing down some of the long sentences that I might be giving you. And you'll, uh, you can just fill in the, the, the smaller detailed notes from your own Just write down those in the spaces that are provided there. If you're going to get the maximum from this class, it's really important that that you not just take the notes and take the the things that are being taught here and then leave them in your notebook, but really to get the maximum out of the class, you need to go back and think through these concepts and think through the scriptures and, and perhaps meditate on them yourself and, and, and really judge like the people in a town called Berea. It says that they were, they were more noble-minded than the people at Thessalonica because when Paul came and declared to them the way of God, they checked out to see what Paul said from the Scripture. And they were noble-minded because they, they didn't just take it for Paul's word, but they went back to the Scripture and they said, does, does the Scripture really say this? And then when they became convinced that the Scripture did say that, then they were... They were willing to receive Jesus, and and they became New Testament Christians. So I would encourage you in the same way to to be very critical and evaluative that you don't just take my word for these things, but you, if if I can spawn you to get into the word yourself and to really say, now, is this really right? Is this really being accurate, what is being said? Then, Then that will be good for you. We always should do that. We always should never just take whoever is teaching just because they say it. But we need to be saying, now, Lord, does it really match up with your word? And if we're willing to do that, it will really help us from falling into error and to to following things that would not be right on. And the Lord exhorts us to do that. The purpose of the class, reading from the syllabus, says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For only as we see God for who he really is, And as he is revealed by the scripture, can we rise up in faith to be the people of God? And it's our desire to look at who God is. And we're going to really challenge some concepts in our minds. And as we're sitting here tonight, we all have a certain concept of who God is. And it's it's my hope that the scripture will really challenge you and even perhaps shake to the very foundation some of your concepts of God that we might truly have a true picture of God. That is probably our deepest need at, at, at any moment in our lives is that we would really see the Lord for who he really is. In Genesis 1.1, is a, really a familiar scripture, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the beginning of all that we know hinges on who God is. And Everything that has been created, everything that happens is in life is ultimately related with God. Therefore, God is, it, because he is the most important being in the universe, it's very important that we understand who he is and that we really get to know God. We get to know the God who is truly there and the God that is revealed in the scriptures. You remember in the Garden of Eden that, that 
God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in a perfect environment. He placed them in a place where they could learn about him, a place where they could have fellowship with each other, a place where they would have certain tasks, taking care of the garden, ruling over all the things that God had made, and they had purpose and responsibility, and they were to enjoy an unending fellowship and relationship with God. When You all know that when God made Adam and Eve and all of the earth, it wasn't made imperfectly, but it was made perfect, and it was in harmony with Him, and it was there, were, there was nothing to disturb that harmony. The, the purpose of Adam and Eve was that as, as they walked with God and as they ate of the tree of life, that they would learn more and more about God so that tomorrow Adam and Eve would have been smarter than they were today and they would have understood a little bit more of God. And on and on that was to go. There was to be no interruption in that plan of people just growing in, in the understanding of who God is. Sin, of course, interrupted that process when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating of the tree that God forbid them not to do. And when they ate of the tree, when they disobeyed, it wasn't just a theological fall. It wasn't just the fact that God was mad and, and therefore he punished them. But when they disobeyed God, they cut themselves off from that intimate fellowship with God and they found, they found themselves alone and naked. Therefore, they covered themselves up. And not only did they cover themselves up physically to hide their nakedness, but they began lying and accusing each other of and blaming each other for the wrong that had been done. And so there was a whole... Um, whole warping and a a loss of the fellowship that Adam and Eve once had with each other and with God. Now, the good news is that Jesus came to redeem us from all that was lost in the fall. And Jesus is the last Adam, and he is the one who is able to restore to us the intimate fellowship with God. And the neat thing, as as I've thought about this and walked with God in my own life, is that we can have a restored relationship with God, and we can grow in the sense of fellowship and relationship that we have with God, because Jesus has restored that through his death and resurrection, so that we can walk with God in the same way that Adam and Eve walked with God. And we can know that intimate fellowship. Now, the class is called The Character of God. The word character means moral or ethical strength or integrity. And so when we talk about the character of God, we're talking about what kind of person is God? What kind of being is he? Is he an ethical being? Is he a moral being? You know, what, what, what kind of a fellow is God, if I can say that in a, in a, in a reverent way? What kind of person is God? And that's what the, the first quarter of theology is going to center on. D.L. Moody said this. He said, character is what you do in the dark when no one is watching. Character is what you do in the dark when no one is watching. That determines what you're really made of. Not when everybody's watching, but it's when you're alone, away from the eyes of any human being. The kind of actions, the kind of things you do in that situation determine your real character. See, that determines your real person. And, 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 as we investigate from the scripture as to who God is, we are delightfully and, 
and pleasantly surprised that there's nothing wrong with God. He is absolutely perfect in all of his ways. He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in justice. He's perfect in his holiness. He's perfect in his wisdom. He's perfect in every way. And that's one of the delights about learning about God is that we find that he indeed is perfect and we can indeed trust him because he's perfect in in every aspect of his character. I want to begin tonight by looking at John 17.3. This is one of my favorite verses from the New Testament. And it gives us a definition of what eternal life is. John 17.3. I'm going to read most of these scriptures. So if you, if you want to turn to them and, and, and follow along, that's fine. But I, I may be going a little too fast for some of you to keep up. But I've written them on the notes so you can look them up at a later time. John 17.3. And this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And here we have a definition of what eternal life is. Eternal life is that we might know God, and that we might know Jesus, his Son. And so eternal life, rather than being an eternal duration of days, which it is, you know, eternity just goes on forever and ever. But the Bible defines eternal life as a quality of relationship. It's a quality of relationship where you, you are in harmony and you are in oneness with another person. And in this case, we're talking about God. So eternal life it's not just the fact you get to live forever, but it's the fact that you get to live forever in a relationship with God. Because you realize, in a sense, everyone gets to live forever. Every one of us, when we're born, are eternal beings. That is, that every one of us will live our destiny either in the presence of God or will live our destiny apart from the presence of God in a place that the Bible calls hell. So in one sense, everyone will have eternal number of days. But only those who have reconciled their relationship to God through Jesus will, will have the, the quality called life. And life entails relationship and being in harmony with the one who created us. And that's exciting, isn't it? That eternally we're going to be with Jesus and we're going to know him better and better. And we're going to increasingly rejoice as we receive greater understanding of who he is. In the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 4, Hosea has, has several things to say about knowing God and the true knowledge of God. In Hosea 4 and verse 1, Hosea says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Now the prophet, God speaking through his prophet said, is saying, I have a bone to pick with you. And he's speaking to Israel. And he's saying, there is no knowledge of me in the land. No one knows me. No one is in a right relationship with me. Now at this time, there was plenty of religious activity. There was plenty of going to the temple. In the New Testament, that would be plenty of going to church. There was plenty of meetings. There was plenty of religious activity. But in the midst of that, no one was getting to know God. No one was being in a personal relationship with him. And then in verse 6, it says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. 
And God says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And because my people don't know me, they go astray, they go their own way, and the punishment or the, the, con- the consequences would be a better word. The consequences of going your own way is that we end up destroying ourselves. You know, in one sense, God doesn't have to judge his enemies. He just lets them do their own thing and they end up destroying themselves. And sometimes God brings judgment in that way. He just lets someone go their own way and we end up reaping the consequences of what we've done. And we do that when we don't know God. Now, because there's no knowledge of God in the land, in chapter 6, Hosea exhorts us in verse 3, Hosea says, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And so the prophet's remedy, and, and as Hosea cried out to his generation, he cried out to his people, he says, so let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord, implying that it isn't just a one-time experience, but it's a a lifelong search for God. And it's like running a race. You need to run that race until you meet the the goal across the finish line. And we need to be, as it were, in, in the race of knowing God so that we're continually pressing on and we're not getting sidetracked at, at, at the refreshment stand or at the fruit stand or, or someplace else. But we always want to have the goal in mind that we're pressing on to know God because that's what eternal life is. It's to know God. And then in verse 6, God says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is more interested in you knowing him than he is in you sacrificing a bunch of things to him. Isn't this interesting that God, we, have, we serve a God who doesn't just want you to worship and serve him, but his desire is that you would have a friendship together. That's God's desire. He wants to have an eternal family. He, the Father, and all of us are children. Jesus is our elder brother. And the Holy Spirit is the one that kind of wraps us, you know, makes it all possible, wraps us all together. God wants a family. He doesn't want just a bunch of slaves saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. And he sits up in heaven and, and with his feet upon his little footstool and sitting back and saying, oh, this is wonderful having all you folks serve me. That's not the proper and scriptural concept of God. But God wants to be his, wants us to be his friends. And he desires to share his intimate secrets with us. That's that's uh, that's a revolutionary view. There's no other god in the universe that's like that. You read into all the other religions and other mythologies, gods are are pretty cruel and wicked, and and they're pretty self-serving. The God of the Bible has, reveals Himself as the one who wants to be your friend, and you you know you, you want to find a good friend. There's no friend like God. You know, human <coughs> friends are neat, and they're they're a needed dimension in our lives, but there's really no comparison to how. A wonderful a friendship with God is. It's a wonderful friendship that we can have with God. And that's a goal that God wants to wants us to shoot for. Let, let's suffice it to say this, that in, in today, there is a lot of religious activity today in America, isn't there? But I, I would say that there's not a lot of, of knowing God in a true and a personal way. Because when we know God, our lives are radically changed. When we 
meet Jesus and when he shines his light on our lives, our, we, we must respond to that. And if we respond in obedience, we find our lives becoming more and more like Jesus. And it's a, it's, a, it's a one-on-one kind of thing that happens as we, we develop a friendship and a relationship with God. So that it's a, the same is true today. There is very little knowledge of God in the earth, especially when we you know, cite the, the statistics that say there's uh, over four and a half billion people in the world, and over two billion of them are not even acquainted with Christianity at this point in history because the Christianity has, has largely been, been obliterated, at least in a public expression, in, in the communist nations and also in the Islamic or Muslim nations. So there's a tremendous challenge for us that we would let the ends of the earth know who God is, that we have a responsibility and a privilege to go to those people and, and as the Holy Spirit would lead each one of us in, in, in his own way. But we would have a responsibility to see that the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's a quote from the book of Isaiah. Yes. Um, in the Old Testament, it says it's better to obey than sacrifice. Is that parallel? Is steadfast love not sacrifice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. To obey is better than sacrifice. Right. That's what God is desiring, isn't it? He wants us to respond to Him. And uh, He doesn't want us just to uh, sacrifice and do a bunch of good works and saying, okay, well, God, I've appeased you now. No, He wants us to obey the thing that He's putting His finger on in our lives at any given moment. So he, he wants a relationship. He wants a son and a daughter. He doesn't just want a slave, or he just doesn't want a bunch of offerings. He wants you. So that's what he's after in your life. He wants, he wants you. So knowing God is the most important task in our lives. That should be the supreme goal of our lives, is to know God. And we want to know him better. Say, for example, you had a job interview, and something came up that you couldn't be there. Would you... Sense, who would you send to represent you? Would you just send anybody? Or would you send someone that would most accurately represent it, who you are? Because if you send anybody, they might walk in there and with a, you know hair uncombed, sloppy t-shirt, sloppy jeans, and just have been on a painting job or something, just look like a mess, you know, and come in and say, oh, yeah, I'm here for Mark, and uh, yeah, he, he wants a job, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think he'd do a good job for you, and you know, <laughs> the guy goes, ah, X, no, ding, you know, no job for this guy, and that's because you would be very careful about who you would send. You would send someone that would represent you fairly and would give an accurate representation, at least as best as possible, to the, the job interviewer. In the same way, we are ambassadors for Christ. We we have been chosen as witnesses for Jesus, and world evangelism hinder or hinges on our making God known and making Jesus known in an accurate sort of way. And many times, the way we behave isn't really accurate and reflective of God, is it? A lot of times, we just act opposite of the way Jesus would act. But as we would grow in our walk with God. The Lord would want our response more and more to be like Jesus, that we would more and more love our enemies, more and more that we would forgive those who wrong us, that more and more we would we would give to those who are not deserving, giving to the poor. See, and as we as we understand who God is, we our lives are changed to respond. And so one of our cries in, in world evangelism is to be, Lord, I, let my life be an accurate reflection of who you are, at least to the light that I have at this moment. Let my life be an accurate portrayal of who you are. 
And that, of course, touches every practical point in our life, all the way from our time to our finances to the words we say and to the thoughts that we think. We want our goal is that they, they would accurately reflect Jesus. I could ask you a question tonight. Does your life accurately reflect the life of Jesus? You need to meditate on that and reflect on that. And if there's some areas that you know that don't reflect the, accurately the life of God and the life of Jesus, then you need to seek the Lord about that and, and be willing to change those areas. I want to read a little bit from a book from by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. This is the book I recommended a moment ago. It's a good book on the character of God and has some delightful meditations. A.W. Tozer is a, or was a Christian Missionary Alliance a minister and theologian. He's, he has quite a number of books and is a very refreshing man to read. He died in, in, in the 60s sometimes, so he's, he's been dead a few years. But I want to read a, a couple of quotes here from his first chapter. He says, What Kim comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever ris- risen above its religion and that man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is as pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or, tho- high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That's what we're really aiming at tonight is, is what is our concept of God? Were we, to able, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In other words, your concept of God is, is, is deeply going to influence the kind of walk you're going to have in the next 10, 20, 30 years of your life. Were we, were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. Without a doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God, and the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. The idea of God corresponding as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. In other words, this, this is our doctrines or, or, or our teachings or our ter- church, perhaps our church traditions that you may have been raised with. Compared to who we conceive God to be, these doctrinal things are really of little consequence. Our real idea of of God may lie buried beneath the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually actually believe about God. And, and this is where, uh, towards the end of the, uh, the message tonight, I'll share with you some practical things. But you know, God, most of the time, reveals himself through the trials and the circumstances of our lives. And it's, it's you know, when things are going along fine for us, and we're kind of sailing on top of everything, it, it's real easy to be spiritual, isn't it? You know, it's real easy to be a Christian and just, ah, you know, you just, you, you got the victory and things are going along fine. 
but let trials and, and circumstances come into your life, then that shows, see, what character, that shows really what you're made of. Let, for example, like Kathy Estes, let, let her get into a, a car wreck and, 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 and end up dying. What, what reaction did that bring to the hearts of us who knew her well? And that brings up into your, that brings to the forefront what you think about God. And you, st- and, and, and some of us perhaps start struggling with God. Why did you let that happen? We find ourselves angry at God and accusing Him of not being righteous and fair and just. Or perhaps you lose your job. For some reason, you lose your job and you were really counting on getting or staying with this job and perhaps you lose it and boom, all these things start rising out of your life. And that's where the true concept of God comes out of our lives is through trials and circumstances. And, and when things come into our lives, that is the groundwork that, that the knowledge of God is revealed. Because many times God shows us what, what we really think about him, and then it gives us a, a, a chance to alter our perceptions and build it on the solid rock of who Jesus is. And so there will come trials and testings to your life. But if you see that they're an opportunity to prove who God is, and, and it's an opportunity to respond in faith rather than in despair and in hopelessness, it will be a challenge to overcome the obstacles that God will, will put in our path and allow to be in our path so that we might grow up in Him. And so trials always have a positive aspect, and that's that we're going to know God better. When we come to a Red Sea and, and there's nowhere to go and there's an Egyptian army crying the war cry behind us and you go, Oh, no, has God brought us out here to kill us? So you're in a perfect position for there to be a miracle. And Moses cries out to God, God, what am I going to do? And, and, and God says, take the staff and raise it above the sea. And God opened up the Red Sea, and they went across it in, in a miracle passageway. And God revealed his glory. And you imagine how excited they got when that Red Sea opened up? Imagine the, the, the rejoicing that was in the nation of Israel when they saw, wow, look what God's doing. They went through... All, all excited because at that trial and at the place, a place of challenge, God revealed himself. And Moses, who was confident in who God was, he didn't cry out in despair. He just said, God, what are we going to do? What's your plan here? And God, because he's a God of love, he had a plan. And right at the last moment, he opened up a miraculous way for the, for the whole nation of Israel to be delivered from Egypt. And so our concept of God is going to be Tested through trials and tribulation. We'll be emphasizing that all throughout the quarter. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. All of the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together at once, would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem of God that he is and what he is like and what we as moral beings must do about him. That's the most important question for for us as human beings to address. Now, I've listed five kind of summary points from this article, and I just want to look through them here. First of all, the most important thing about you is who you picture God to be. Second point, it is is of extreme importance that our idea of God correspond to who God really is. 
In other words, we need to always be open for God to adjust our thought of who God really is and so that our ideas line up with the word and, and with the actual reality of who God is. Now, don't you realize that all of us have an imperfect view of God? All of us have a very, probably a very dim and imperfect view of God. But God in his grace wants to give us a greater view of himself. He wants to put us in a place where we can prove God and where he can prove himself to us. The third thing, and this is really important, the error, any error in theology probably stems from imperfect thoughts about God. Anytime we get errors in, 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 in the Christian theology and basic orthodox Christian thought, anytime we get ourselves off on a tangent of arguing one side of a theological issue versus another side of a theological issue, probably we have lost the revelation of who God is because all doctrine, all teaching needs to be filtered through the revelation of who God is because some theologies can make God to be a real meanie or some ogre in the sky or some relentless slave master. And that's not what the scripture reveals God to be at all. So it's real important that our theology, you know, at least as accurate as possible, reflect who God is. Number four, idolatry is having a concept of God that is not worthy of the true God. The essence of idolatry is, is having a false concept of God and making him to be lesser than he really is. And then five, your relationship with God depends on your concept of God. The kind of relationship you have with God depends on your concept with God. You, if you've got a yellow highlighter, you can highlight that one because that, that is, this is a very important point. The kind of relationship you have with God will depend on your concept of him. And Jesus, through hopefully through this class and through his word, is going to alter your concepts of God so that you can have a better relationship. You can have a, a more full and a more meaningful relationship with him. Okay, moving on. There's two kinds of knowledge that I want to talk about tonight. The first kind of knowledge is typified by the Greek ideal. The Greeks had an ideal, and the Greek ideal was that if you intellectually apprehended something, then you knew it. And so in the Greek sense, if you intellectually understood something, then you knew it. Okay, now our educational system today is based on the Greek system. And you go to school, you're taking classes, you'll take tests, and at the end of the quarter, you will know something, won't you? You will hopefully intellectually be able to understand the subject that you took. Now, there, that, that's, this is not without value, so I'm not putting it down, but I, we just need to put this in the proper light. The just the fact that you have learned something and studied something in the school in school does not necessarily mean that you can go out in life and do it, does it? There's a certain element of practical experience that needs to come into your life before you really become a skilled worker in, in whatever field that that you may be working in. In Titus one sixteen, Titus Paul, when he writes to Titus, he, he addresses this issue. He's speaking of, of godless men and he says they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So what these people had is that they were religious people. They said, and I'll put it in the New Testament vernacular, they said, oh yeah, we go to church. Yeah, I go to church every Sunday. Yeah, I, I give some money to the church. And yet in business dealings, they're not honest. They don't have any care for the poor and the needy around them. 
They have a foul mouth. They accuse and they belittle other people with their words. And, and people kind of scratch their heads. And this guy's supposed to be a Christian? And it's because the guy has some knowledge about God. And maybe he could even quote the Bible to you. But just because you intellectually know something does not guarantee that you have a relationship with God, does it? And that's why we need to go to a deeper level. And that's the, the second ideal. And that's the Hebrew ideal. Before I go to that, I want to read the scripture from 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. The letters to Timothy are interesting letters because Paul is writing to one of his closest disciples. He's writing to a young man who he, um, who he, he spent a lot of time with. And so Paul is, 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 is sharing things with Timothy as, as a close disciple. And therefore, the, the things that Paul writes in First and Second Timothy are really um, significant for those of you who are really desiring to be disciples of Jesus. And here's what he says in verse 3. He says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to, ste- not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. And what in essence Paul is saying here is, is warning Timothy not to let these teachers get off on head trips, talking about genealogies and myths and all of this good knowledge, but it, do, but it doesn't have anything to do with you responding to the truth that you're hearing. Verse 5, Paul says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, now, Paul's goals was not that you'd get A's in the seminary, was not that you'd have a nice fat notebook full of notes, or that you'd be able to quote all of the scriptures of the Bible. Isn't it interesting? That's not Paul's goal. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things in, in themselves, but it's got to go deeper. Paul's goal is that there would be love from your heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, all of those things are things that touch the deepest part of us, don't they? They touch our character. And this is where the Hebrew ideal comes in. The Hebrew ideal was that when you you truly knew something, when you experienced it and participated in it. So the Hebrew ideal went a step further. They said that you didn't really know something until you, you needed to understand it intellectually, yes, like the Greeks did, but you needed to take it a step further and you needed to integrate it into your life. So the Hebrew ideal is an entry into a relationship with the experienced world, which makes demands not only on the understanding, but also on the will. In other words, we need to make choices in our lives to conform our lives with the knowledge that we're getting. So that's what what we would call heart knowledge. Heart knowledge is the kind of knowledge that we have responded and obeyed God in, in the understanding that we've gotten. Okay. For example, last week at Maranatha, uh, I shared on the will of God. And just, we just got started in the book of Ephesians. And if you were a Greek, you, could, you would sit back and you would say, oh, that's good. Yeah, we, we need to be in the will of God. Boy, Dick, that was a good sermon. You uh, exposited that verse well, and you, you did a good homiletical job, and that was really good. And yet I never stop and say, now, Lord, Am I in your will with everything that I'm doing in my life? And if I never stop to ask that question, then I am 
bordering on this first kind of knowledge, and I'm not delving to the depth that Jesus wants me to be delving. But if I stop and say, now, Lord, here I heard a message on being in your will, and I'm just going to spend a little time here praying, and I want you to show me if I'm not in your will. Okay, now, say you're, you're praying and, and you, you said, now, Lord, show me your will. And the Lord shows you that you're supposed to stop stealing cookies, okay? He shows you real clearly that you're not supposed to steal cookies from the cafeteria anymore. If you are a disciple and you want to know God, what will you stop doing? You'll stop stealing cookies and you'll realize, whoa, I better stop stealing cookies if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. And you'll say, Lord, I repent. I turn away from stealing cookies and I ask for your grace that I might not do that anymore. I used kind of an obvious example, but I use that. That's the way as to illustrate the way that if we're going to have true knowledge of God, we need to respond, see, to the word that is coming to us. It's not enough just to say, oh, that was a good teaching. Yay, that was really neat. I really got excited about it. But I've got to say, now, Lord, where do you want to change me through this message that I've heard tonight? And if we, if we have that attitude, then we're going to grow in the knowledge of God. Give you a couple of examples that contrast these two concepts. Say you were caught out in a cold. You were out in a storm, perhaps in a blizzard, and you, know, you had snow all over your face, and you didn't have much, many heavy clothes, and you were just freezing. You're not wandering around trying to find a place to get warm, and finally you, you find a cabin, and the guy's got a nice warm fire in there, and you, you blap on the door. The guy opens the door and says, oh, come in. You must be freezing, and you get up there before the fire. Do you need to have a thermometer to know that you're in front of a warm fire? No, you don't, because why? You've, you're experiencing it. You know that it's warm in there. And that's, the, that's kind of the way that God wants us to know him, not just through intellectual apprehension, but through a revelation deep in our hearts. Say you were going to get an operation, and you were going to go to a doctor to get something operated on. Would you like to go to the doctor that had done 10 previous operations, or would you go to the doctor that had read all the books on it and says, oh, I know how to do that? Which doctor would you be confident in going to? Of course, the one who's had the experience, say, and, and, and because he had been taught and had been, he had been an apprentice to some, another surgeon who had learned to do the same thing. He had been trained in an experiential way. And we also can look at this example. Let's just think of the President of the United States, President Reagan, and your best friend. Now, you can share things with your best friend that you wouldn't share with President Reagan. Isn't that right? First of all, we can't get to President Reagan because there's a White House guard out there, and, and he just won't let you in. You say, you come up and knock, knock, knock. I want to see President Reagan today. And the guy will say, well, do you have an appointment? Well, well, no, I just want to get to know Ronald Reagan a little better, and I'm sorry, you have to have an appointment to come to see the president. So there would be no way that we could even have a relationship with President Reagan. And and if you wanted to know President Reagan, you could read all of all of the books that have been written about him. You could read all the newspapers all the time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report magazines. You could read the Wall Street Journal. You could watch old Ronald Reagan flicks. You could do all sorts of things. You could even interview Nancy and talk to her and find out what kind of person Ronald Reagan is. And yet, would you really know him? See, you really wouldn't know him until you'd sat down and spent some time with him. And the more time you spent with him, then you could truly say, I know Ronald Reagan. And it only, it's only as you would interact with him as a person that you would truly have the Hebrew kind of knowledge, heart knowledge of that person. And that's the way it is with God. 
It's not enough just to hear about the God of Israel. It's not enough just to hear about Jesus Christ. And you see, you hear about him in church. You hear about him when he's proclaimed by, by pastors and teachers and ministers. But do you know him for yourself? Have you personally met the Savior? And have you personally had him in an ongoing sort of way reveal himself to you? See, is he becoming more and more real to you week by week and month by month as you walk on with him? And that's the goal. See, that's what God wants. He wants us to know him. In Genesis 4 and verse 1, there's an interesting verse that says that Adam knew Eve and Seth was born. And what that's saying is Adam and Eve had sexual relations and their first child was born. Well, this wasn't the first one. It was their, um, it was our third one. And the, the, the Hebrew word there is the Hebrew word yada. And it's the same word that is, is used to know. And so in this word, in the same way that a man and a woman have intimate relations and, and it binds them together in, in, in holy marriage, in the same way, we can know God in an intimate sort of way, not just by hearsay or not just from afar off, but just as is pictured in marriage, they can, you, we can know God in an intimate, personal, beautiful sort of way. And that's how God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him in that way. And because of Adam and Eve having relations, fruit came forth from that relationship. You know, there was children born to them. In the same way as we know God and as we get to know him better and better, there's going to be fruit born from our relationship with God. And, and others see, are going to come to know God. Others are going to be inspired to follow the Lord more and more. So, see, world evangelism really is nothing more than us knowing God that's the first part. And then secondly, making him known to other people. But see, we've got to know the Lord personally first before we can truly make him known to other people. A couple of scriptures that, that confirm this. Second Timothy 1.12. Paul says, For I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. It is, isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say, I know in what I have believed. But it's in whom I have believed in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know that he is able to, to, to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And, and, and this is where sometimes um, the liturgical churches, uh, I think, uh, miss God's maximum in that some people say, well, if you just believe the creed, then you're a Christian. And do, do, do you see the error in that? It's not just what you believe, it's in who you believe. See, it has to be a personal friendship with God. It's not enough just to know all the right doctrines. You can know all the right doctrines and yet not know God. That is one of the tragic things of seminary because you get so much head learning, four intense years of head learning. And just because you have a seminary degree does not necessarily mean that you know God. It might, and, 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 and sometime, sometimes does, but it's no substitute for the revelation of God and God teaching you in the day-by-day -day grind of life. That's where the knowledge of God is found, is with a person that walks with God every day. And then Colossians 1.27, Paul says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not the doctrine or the creed or, or the four spiritual laws, or the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed, or, you know, whatever, or the, the, the Lutheran liturgy, which is the church that I grew up in. It's not the Lutheran liturgy within me. It's not the catechism in me. It's not my confirmation in me. 
It's Christ, the person in me, the hope of glory. So it's not the doctrine. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, moving on. In Judges 2 and verse 10, the scripture says there, and it says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work of the Lord that he had done for them. And the next verse, verse 11, says that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what this goes to show is that every person must come to know God on their own. God has no grandchildren. God doesn't have any people that are, well, he doesn't have any grandchildren. Every person must know God personally. And um, when you come to the point where if you get married and have a family, and you raise your children up in the ways of the Lord, and, and may God give us all the grace, may God give me the grace to do that as our child is coming any day now. But there's going to come a day when my little son or daughter is going to have to make his own choice, and he will have to know God in a personal way. So he cannot ride on my relationship. It's not enough for, for, for him just to be in a godly family and even be the son of a minister. But there comes a day when he must make his own choice and he must learn to know God himself. And that's the way it is with every generation. As these sessions were recorded on cassette tape, some content might have been lost when the cassette was flipped over. Okay, moving on. In Judges 2 and verse 10, the scripture says there, and it says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work of the Lord that he had done for them. And the next verse, verse 11, says that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what this goes to show is that every person must come to know God on their own. God has no grandchildren. God doesn't have any people that are, well, he doesn't have any grandchildren. Every person must know God personally. And um, when you come to the point where if you get married and have a family and you raise your children up in the ways of the Lord and, and may God give us all the grace may God give me the grace to do that as our child is coming any day now. But there's going to come a day when my little son or daughter is going to have to make his own choice and he will have to know God in a personal way. So he cannot ride on my relationship. It's not enough for, for, for him just to be in a godly family and even be the son of a minister. But there comes a day when he must make his own choice and he must learn to know God himself. And that's the way it is with every generation. Every generation must come to know Jesus in a personal way. Okay, we wanna, we'll more briefly look at a few other scriptures here. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 through 25. It's beautiful things that, that the Old Testament has to say about knowing God. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 25, 23 through 25. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Now that knows is the same word that Adam and Eve knew Adam and Eve knew each other and Seth was born. It's the same Hebrew word yada. And so let him who boasts boasts of this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So if anyone is going to boast about anything in this life, God says, 
There's only one thing that you ought to boast about, and that's that you know God, that you're a friend of God. Don't boast in your riches. Don't boast in your abilities. Don't boast in your talents. Don't boast in your education. But boast in one thing, that you know God, because that's ultimately the only thing that really matters. And understanding God takes time. It just takes a lifetime of seeking God and walking through life. There's just no, no shortcuts to knowing God. It's a very slow and painful process. But if, but if you're willing to devote yourself to it daily, then God will be pleased to reveal himself to you. Exodus 33, verses 7 through 23. We won't read this whole portion of Scripture, but what, what the, the context of this is, is God is, is, Moses is seeking the Lord about the children of Israel, and after their their incident with the golden calf, God is upset. He's angry with Israel. Um, God at one point wants to just leave and take Moses and destroy the rest of the nation and make a new nation out of Moses. Moses doesn't permit that. He, he offers prayers at the end of chapter 32. And so God's mercy is extended to the people. And so in verse 13, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 12, it says, now Moses is talking with the Lord, and it says, Then Moses says to the Lord, See, thou dost say to me, Bring up this people, but thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover, thou hast said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that I might find, I might find favor in thy sight." And so Moses prays, prays an interesting prayer. He says, Lord, let me know your ways that I might know you. Let me know your ways that I might know you. And God answered Moses' prayer because at the end of the chapter, this is the place where he asks to see the glory of God. And God says, you can't see my glory and live. It's not that God didn't want to show it to him. It's that a human being cannot stand the full revelation of God's glory. So God puts him in a little crack in the rock. He holds his hand over the rock. He walks by, and then he takes his hand away, and Moses gets to see a little bit of the afterglow. And the afterglow is so bright that he comes down off the mountain glowing from the glory of God. And he just got a little glimpse of the tail end of God, and it just was almost more than he could handle. And God, see, if you will pray, if you'll set your heart to seek God, he will reveal himself in, in amazing ways. And he does it through his ways, the ways that he works in our lives. So we need to be, we need to be seeking God and saying, God, I do want to know you. I want to, I want to know you in the fullest way possible. And just as Moses had to climb to the mount, climb to the top of Mount Sinai, that that stony peak, in order to get the the tablets from God, the, st the stone tablets that were the Ten Commandments. So too must we climb and be willing to sacrifice and be willing to pay the price of getting to know God. And, and the price is be willing to do what God tells us to do. And you read you, the whole Bible is full of examples of different people that had to do different things. Noah had to build the ark. David built a temple, and David was, was the king, you know, the prophets, Elijah and Elisha did all sorts of things, and God requires different things of different people. But the cost of knowing God is being willing to obey him and being willing to do what he tells you to do. Would you be willing to go to Africa tomorrow if God called you to go? Or are you willing to witness to your next door neighbor tomorrow when God says talk to him 
Or are you willing to stand up in your class saying, sir, I disagree with that. I believe in God and on and on you go to witness for the Lord. Or are you willing to give $10 when God says give $10 to this person or that or that mission or, or whatever? See, it starts with obedience. And the revelation of God comes as we obey God. Now, Proverbs chapter 2 gives us the intensity by which we're to seek God. Joy Dawson, a teacher who Rod and I both have heard somewhat, and, and I deeply respect her. She's a teacher with YWAM, a group called Youth with a Mission. And she says that God does not honor casual inquirers, but he only will honor diligent seekers. He will reward diligent seekers, but not casual inquirers. And that's that, eh, if you just, ah, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of get to know you, Lord. And, you know, if I have a little time once a week, I'll spend with you. And, you know, you know how things are here on this earth. It's, it's pretty tough being a college student and all. And, you know, I got to keep my grades up and... Um, you understand, Lord. And and if you face the, seeking the Lord with that attitude, then you'll get what you seek for. You know, put in a little, you'll get a little out. But if you will seek the Lord diligently, then you will get much out. That's that's just God's laws of fairness. Now, this is the way the Lord exhorts us to seek him in Proverbs chapter 2. This is, address, this is Solomon speaking to his son. It would be in type God the Father speaking to us as sons. It says, my son. If you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, there's the first thing, treasure the commandments, and make your ear attentive to wisdom. See, listen to the Lord and incline your heart to understanding. And that's that, you, you know, you have a willingness to hear the word of the Lord. And that, now, verse 3, we're going to get a little fanatical because it says, if you cry for discernment and if you lift your voice for understanding, so there's some intensity there. It's not just some passive waiting for something good to fall upon you, but there's a real uh, saying, Lord, I, I really want this. And then in verse four, it says, if you seek her as silver, and if you search for her as for hidden treasure, and then when you do all of that, the promise is, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you and understanding will watch over you. Aren't those a bunch of beautiful promises? All the things that God will do for us and through us. But the, the condition is that we're willing to be diligent seekers. And are you willing to be a diligent seeker tonight? Are you willing to make it the goal of your life to know God? And see, so you guys, if you catch a little glimpse of Jesus, if you just catch a little glimpse of him and you see his ultimate value, you will make it the priority of your life. Because, boy, there's nothing more valuable than Jesus in this life. There's really nothing else to live for. And, and although football games are fun and the Super Bowl is okay and it's fun to go cross-country skiing and I like to do a lot of things, it's, it's a cut under knowing God. Because all these things will, will pass away. But the knowledge of Jesus and knowing him will be with us forever. That's something that we'll, we'll know forever. And this is my opinion, but I think that our reward in heaven 
is going to be proportional to how well we know God. I think the more we know God here, the more we'll appreciate him in eternity. And so the you know in the, in, in the in the scripture it says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 it says that, that our works will be tested by fire and if a man's work is burned up everything that he's brought to heaven will be lost but he shall be saved so as through fire. So it, I believe that everybody all of us are saved as a grace gift of God. None of us earn salvation. That's, it's the merit that G, uh, uh, it's the merit of God. Jesus chose to die for us. He chose to forgive us. There's nothing we can do to earn God's grace. Man, we just say thank you, Lord. I don't deserve it, but I really appreciate it. We're just beggars finding bread somewhere. That's what that's what God has done in salvation. But what we do with the gift of salvation. How well we get to know God now that we're reconciled with him, how much effort and energy we give to knowing him, that is, the, the reward of that is going to be how well we know God in eternity. So I think that our reward is going to be proportional to how well we know God here on this earth. Philippians 3, that we'll look at one more scripture and then we'll look at some practical aspects. Philippians chapter 3, this is a good look into Paul's heart. Paul is... One of my New Testament heroes, an incredible man. The more I study and read him, the more I appreciate his intense drive to know God and his intense drive to see God's kingdom extended. Philippians chapter 3, we'll begin with verse 7. Now Paul before this was listing all of his credentials as a Jew. He was listing all of the things that are important to society. Uh, what are some of the things that would be important to society now uh, that would really make you someone in this world? Money. Money, okay, money. Okay, talent, popularity, your education maybe, you know, or, you know, the fact that you've written some articles in Scientific American and you've gotten in the who's who and who's who in college life, and uh, on and on the list goes. And those would be things that, see, the world puts stock in. And when they see, you know, DD or MD after your name, they go, oh, you know, and they get real excited, you know. Now, Paul says that I had a whole list of things that were looked on by the Jewish community as really something. And yet, here's what he says about him. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, all the things that the world holds up are meaningless for the sake in, in compared to, to, to knowing Christ. And then verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost, all things to be lost. Think of the, the depth of that statement. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of, of knowing Christ Jesus. Now again, that's the experiential, knowing by revelation, knowing by personal acquaintance, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That The word rubbish is actually the word dung, and we could use the contemporary word for it, but it's the same connotation in the Greek. I count them all as dung, as manure, it compared to the surpassing knowledge or surpassing 
surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul said there's nothing this world has to offer that compares with who Jesus is. And so he and Paul suffered the loss of all things. He lost his reputation. He didn't have much material things because he was on the move all the time. He lost everything. He lost his position in Judaism. He lost everything that this world holds dear. And yet he found everything that's eternally valuable. Verse 9, he goes on. And I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's a righteousness of performance, you know, always doing, performing the right thing. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. Now, where did we hear that before? That was in Hosea. Remember, Hosea said, let us press on to know the Lord. Now, here's Paul in the New Testament saying the same thing. But I press on in order that I may lay a hold of that for which I also was laid a hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid a hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul had this attitude that he was pressing on, even as he's an old man. And this is really, Philippians is a letter that's written towards the end of his life. He doesn't have very many years left to live now, but he's still saying, I'm pressing on to know God. And you know, you think, boy, if anybody knew God, it was Paul. He'd been caught up into heaven, saw things that it isn't permitted for men to see. And he heard words that people can't even talk about. And he says, I saw things I'm not even permitted to tell you about. And yet he's saying, I want to know God better. And so it's not a thing where you arrive to, but it's always a search that we're on, that we're always getting to know Jesus better and better. And this is kind of exciting about eternity, that you're never going to get bored in heaven because there's always going to be new things to discover about God because he's infinite and we'll never exhaust him. That means God's always going to have a closet somewhere where he's going to open up and say, surprise, and we'll go, oh, wow, and we'll get all excited and just be blown away from revelation to revelation. And that's what what we have to look forward to in eternity is that we're going to know him better and better. But it starts now by knowing him now. And as many years as God has given us here on this earth, in this time where there's a conflict between good and evil, between Satan and between the people of God, and we're all we're involved in that. The church is, is God's beachhead here on this earth to establish his kingdom. And it's all during this time of warfare and conflict and sin and evil and all this stuff going on that we are we, we get to see Jesus in the midst of all this corruption and stuff. We get to see the, the coming of the Lord and as he comes into our circumstances and as he reveals himself and reveals his glory. So there's going to be no war in heaven. It's going to be peace and joy and all sorts of fun things there. It's not going to be any war. But, but during here, this period of time, we strengthen our muscles and we have opportunity to learn about God in, in, in this conflict of, of this conflict of conflicting age until Jesus returns. We get to, to be his witnesses and, and to go forth and do his work in the earth. What a privilege. What a calling. What a purpose. And it all comes from knowing him. Now, what are some practical things? Let's, let's look at the list of practical things.
God, do you realize this tonight that God wants to reveal himself to you? You don't have to get God in a, some kind of half Nelson position and twist his arm and say, okay, now God, you're going to reveal yourself to me? No. You're going to reveal yourself to me? Yeah. Keep twisting his arm back and finally he goes, all right, quit it, quit it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal myself to you. God is more desiring to reveal himself to you than you even want to know him. He just waits to show him us himself. And what he just needs to wait is that he's watching for is the proper response so that he can trust us with the revelation that he gives us. So we have to mature and we have to be trustworthy so that we're, we're able to handle the revelation God gives us. It's just like you don't give razor blades to a baby, do you? Why not? Because the baby go, eh, you know, he would cut himself up and it would be detrimental to his health. So God can only give us revelation as we're trustworthy. And that's why we have to cultivate faithfulness and, and we have to work on our character so that our character is more and more aligning up with God's. Okay, the first principle is we confess how little we know God. We need to be honest with God and meet him right where we're at when you say, God, I really don't know you very well. And we need to just tell him, I want to get to know you better. I want to get to know you better. And the second principle, ask God to make it the supreme desire of your life. And see, if, if, if you aren't really all consumed with knowing God, and, and there was a point in my life where I wasn't all consumed with knowing God, and I had to start praying, well, Lord, I really want knowing you to be the supreme desire of my life. And God, by his grace, has begun working that desire, and he will meet you right where you're at. So if you're sitting here tonight, don't say, well, I'm shot because I don't really want to know God all that well. You start asking him, saying, well, Lord, give me a desire to know you. And he'll start doing that. And he'll start putting those things of desire in your heart. And then the third thing we need to do is pray these prayers given by the Holy Spirit. These are prayers that Paul prayed. They're prayers that Paul prayed for the church. And they're tremendous prayers. And what you can do is just copy these prayers down. And I suggest you put them up on your medicine cabinet or you know, on your, your dresser drawer or something, somewhere where you see it every day. And like, you know, in the morning when you're combing your hair, brushing your teeth, just read that prayer and say, Lord, this is my prayer today. And I was just giving you an example of one of them. And it's, it's my favorite one. It's in Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 19. I'll start at verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its, derives its name. That he would grant to you, whoops, I got the wrong, got the wrong verse. I was in Ephesians 3, okay, here's Ephesians 1. For this reason too, I'll begin with verse 15. For this reason too, I having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now here's what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the true knowledge of him. So Paul is praying, Lord, for these believers at Ephesus, I pray that you'll come and reveal yourself to them. That's his first prayer. And in verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And that's that you might know God's calling upon your life, the unique calling that he has for you. And then the third thing, 
in verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us believe, to, towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might. So Paul prays there for three things. He prays that for a revelation to these people of who God is. The secondly, the, he prays that they would re- receive an understanding of, of their calling in God. And then the third thing is that they would realize the strength of God that's towards all of the believers. That we'd realize the power and the strength that we have available to us through the Holy Spirit. And so you need to pray these prayers. You need to make these a regular part of your prayer life. And, and listen, these prayers are not only good for you, but they're good for your friends, your relatives, your loved ones, anyone. These are great prayers. And see, they're given, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, so they hit their mark. If Paul prayed them, I think I'm going to pray them. You know, he's a lot better than I was, so I'm going to at least pray his prayers. And so that's a, a real good thing to do. Okay, the fourth thing you do is that ask Father God for a deeper revelation of himself every time you read his word. See, every time we open the Word of God, every time we read the Bible, really every time we hear a message or anything, our heart's cry needs to be, Lord, show me something new about you today. And even if you've heard a message five or six times and you think, oh man, I've heard this message before. If you say, Lord, show me something unique about you, the Holy Spirit will quicken new things to you. And the message, the Word of God never needs to get boring because God will always quicken new truth to you. I remember so many times that I, I've been reading along in, in the Bible. Now, I want to I make this clear that every time I sit down and read my Bible, it isn't fireworks and, you know, things happening. You, you're getting all super excited. Sometimes it's, it's, it's as dry as cornmeal, you know, just dry as dust. And I read it by faith. It isn't always accompanied by good feelings because we walk by faith and not by feelings. But there's been other times where God has made something real and it's just like something has leaped off the page. And I go, wow, when did they put that one in there? And and it'll just come alive. And that's the Holy Spirit making things real to you. And all of a sudden you'll be reading through a passage or or through um, a, a chapter of Scripture. and It'll just come to you. Oh, that's what that means. And you'll realize, wow, that's how that applies to my life. Or that's how that applies to a problem my friend is having. And that's how the, the revelation of the Holy Spirit comes. God quickens truth to us. And as always, we need to respond to that. That's the seventh principle. So it's through the Word of God that, that most of the time we receive revelations of who God is. And so that means that you need to be a student of God's Word. And not because it's a legalistic thing and, yes, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I better study my Bible. There's a lot of people that think that. But why are we studying the Bible? to know God better. So I say, Lord, I'm going to look into your word today because I want to know you better. See, it's not legalistic. Like, oh, I better. God's really going to be upset with me if I don't read my three chapters today, you know, that we get under New Testament legalism. It's that, no, I want to read three chapters today because I want to get to know Jesus better today. I want to know a little bit more about him. And then number five, do a study of the character of God. Do a study of the character of God and, and begin to keep some records and, and, and jot down things that God shows you. I've got a little thing that, that Joy Dawson showed us. It's a thing called a Pearl Book, and originally it was just one little notebook like this with an A to Z divider in it, and it just had loose-leaf categories. And as I would see things from the Scripture, 
I would, you know, jot them down in, in the appropriate category. Okay. Like, for example, under C, I've got a whole section on the church. So I would take all my notes from the church and, and concepts about the church and, and put them in my little notebook here. Okay, I would go to F and there'd be a, a section on fasting. I've got some notes from some messages and I just got some other notes that uh, I, I've jotted down as the Lord has showed me things. So what, what I'm doing is I'm gathering I'm, I'm gathering up the fruit of my meditation. So when it comes time for me to teach or, or share with someone else, and listen, all of you are teachers in the body of Christ. If we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, which, which I assume you're here, you're here because you have a desire to do that, you're going to be teaching in some capacity. All of us, there's billions of people out there that don't know God. That means all of us are going to be called on to teach those who don't know the ways of God. Now, you might not stand up and be a formal teacher, but on a one-to-one basis, small group leader, Bible study, or some way at, at, at your place of employment or something, you're going to be teaching. And if you're faithful in, in you know, collecting the things that God shows you, you're going to have a resource to go and to share with them. And the neat thing is that it's not just notes you've taken out of a book and, and, and read out of a commentary somewhere, but these are things that God has quickened to you personally. And so when you start reading back over them and you go, oh, wow, yeah, I remember when God showed me that. And then when you share it with other people, it has life to it. That's where these messages came from. Most all this stuff is just the fruit of meditation over the past five or six years, little things that God has showed me, and I've just been putting them together in my books. i got about six of these now, so the project has grown, and a friend of mine painted these up. You know, he's a real good artist, so I have him paint my little notebooks up and put scriptures on them, but I really encourage you to devise some kind of system so that you can collect the study that you're going to do of the Word of God, and I, I just impress upon you to be serious about studying God's Word. Because I find that I used to take notes and, and keep them in my back of my Bible. In fact, here's my current stack. i got a whole stack of them. And um, about the end of the year, it'd be about yay thick, and I'd go, oh, no. And they'd be worthless because I'd say, oh, I remember when that guy said that quote. Now, where is that? <laughs> I'd go tear through all my notes. And, oh, where was that? Thing? And I couldn't find it, you know. It was it just was useless because I couldn't retrieve the things that that I had, had written down. So uh, a little divider notebook can really be a, of help in that. But whatever system you use, use something that works for you. If file cards work, use that. But whatever works, use it and devise something that will work. Because God's going to, if you're serious about studying and meditating on God's word, he's going to start showing you things. And you need to keep a record of them so that they'll be, you'll be able to use them later to teach others. You'll know them yourself and you'll be able to teach others. And then number six is just a kind of a continuation of this, meditate on the scriptures that reveal God. And I've listed several passages there where we get a glimpse into heaven, we get a glimpse in, in, of, of where the scripture shows us who God is. And, and you guys, there's something dynamic about getting alone and laying out on the floor, kind of prostrating yourself before God, and opening a section of scripture and saying, okay, Lord, when Isaiah saw you high and lifted up and he saw the seraphs cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, show me by your spirit what he experienced. And there may come a day, I, I'm certain there will come a day if you're diligent, that God will take you to that place where you've met God. And it won't be just words on a page like, yeah, I wonder what Isaiah saw up there and all that smoke filling the temple and all that stuff. And after all, what are all those seraphs and things? See, that's just head knowledge. But boy, when you've been there, 
when God has brought a sense of his holiness to you, you'll never be the same again. And I've had experiences where God, through the word, has revealed himself and, and has made, made, made particular qualities of himself real in, 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 in a small way. And it's a life-changing experience, man. You're never the same again. It's a glorious thing. This uh, uh, brother Cornwall that shared at Salt this year shared how he was just a young minister, just in his early twenties, and he was preaching at a little church in California, and it was a church of, of older people, and he preached for about six months, and nothing was happening, and 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 his him and his wife weren't getting along very well, and she went home to see mom, and and he was real frustrated with everything, and and, and he he said. I'm, if this is all there is to Christianity, I'm going to chuck it. I'm going to get into something else. You know, and so he said, I'm going to go seek God. So he took his dogs and he took uh, a gallon of water or a big jug of water and he went out and found a, uh, a, a big tree. What, remember what kind of tree it was? Anybody? Cedar tree, yeah. It was a big cedar tree. Kind of carved himself out a little place under the bushes there. And, and, he, and he, he started praying. He said, God, I'm not going to leave here until you meet me. And he said, uh, you know, he prayed and cried out to God and a day or two went by and kept crying and praying. And, and he said, God, those dogs will go home before I, before I leave you, before you touch me and reveal yourself to me. And at some point later, he didn't say how long, but the dogs left. And he said, God, that water jug will be empty and I'll die of thirst here but before I leave it, and, until you've blessed me. And, and this went on for uh, I heard him tell the story another time, and I think it was in it was a couple of weeks he stayed there. I mean, he was really persistent, <laughs> and and he said at, uh, he would, God came, and and the place was transformed, and the glory of God came, and he says I've never been the same since. And I think if if I remember right, it was a three day experience he had with God. God took him to heaven. God took him to hell, and and gave him just a whole bunch of revelation about what he wanted for his life and. He, he came back a changed man. In fact, some uh, 20 years later, he went back to the same tree they were visiting up in that same area of California. He went back to the place. He didn't take his wife with him. He said he, said he wanted to go alone. And he went up there, and, and God visited him again. He just went there to, just to see, you know. And it wasn't that God was dwelling in that tree or anything, but it's where he met God. And he stayed up there seven hours or something and said it just was just like a minute passed away. He was in the presence of God. So those kinds of things will happen as you seek the Lord and use as you ask the Lord. Now, I don't want you to give you the impression that we're, we're always just seeking experiences. We're not. We're seeking Jesus. But the experience accompanies and the Spirit is willing to give us experiences as he has men and women all throughout the Bible in order to give them understanding and to Motivate them to press on to know God. And God will give you experiences, maybe not, maybe not those same ones, probably not those same ones at all, but he will give you unique ones that are just for you. And that's just part of the benefit of, of seeking and knowing God. And then the seventh principle is that when God speaks, you need to obey him. Obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So when God quickens some truth to you about fasting, and then he says, now I want you to fast tomorrow. You better do it. Because you need to obey the revelation that God gives you. And most always, he'll require obedience from your life first before you can begin sharing it with everybody. 
So you can't go tell everybody, hey, man, we got to start fasting. He requires you to start doing it. And then when you have a discipline and you start working it in your life, then God will release you to begin sharing it with others. And they're going to respond because it'll be life to them. But God will work it into your life first. Psalms 90 and verse 12. This is Moses' last psalm. This is the only psalm that's written by Moses. And this verse says, Teach us, dear Lord, to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom, that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom, the King James Version says. And Moses, a man that spent lots of time in the presence of God, and he said the most important thing is that we would know God. Teach us, dear Lord, to number our days, that we might present to thee a heart of wisdom, or that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. And that's... Seeking God and knowing Him. In Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29, remember this is the story of the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock. Jesus said, The man who hears the word and does not obey it is the man that builds his house on the sand. And everything's fine until the flood comes. And what happens when the flood comes? The house gets washed away and great is its ruin. But the man who hears the word of God and obeys it. There's the key, the personal response. That man is like the man that built his house on the rock. The winds came, the storms came, the floods came, and the house stood because it was built on the rock. And if you will be committed to obeying the word of God and responding to God's word, Jesus will build your life on the rock. And Jesus is the rock. And there's nothing come hell or high water that will move you off that rock. Paul said, neither heights, nor depths, nor breadth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor nor rulers, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God. He says that in Romans 8. And it's as we're planted on Jesus, the solid rock, and we plant ourselves on Jesus by responding to the word of God. That's the pattern of obedience. And then one last scripture, Daniel 11.32. This is another one of my favorite scriptures. I have a lot of favorite scriptures, really. This is speaking in reference to the Antichrist. It says, in the, it says, and by smooth words, he, and that's referring to the Antichrist, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. So in the face of of all this calamity and one world government coming on the earth and, and the Antichrist seemingly having all power to do everything, the scripture says that those who know their God, it's not those that go to church, not those who are a part of this denomination or that denomination, but it's those who know God, they will display strength and they'll take action in the face of the enemy. And we're coming, we're in a time where, you know, everything's being shaken, the economy's bad, you know, times are hard, and it's probably going to get worse. It's, it's, we got ourselves in a real fix as far as the way we've managed money in this nation, we're going to pay for it. There's a, day of, there's a day of reckoning coming very soon. Very soon. And so we're, gonna, we're probably going to go some, through some real tribulation and cultural shaking, especially for us, the affluence that we're used to. But it says... Those who know their God will display strength and take action. And if you know God, 
rather than the circumstances being master over you, you will rise up and be the master of your circumstances. Let famines come. Our God will provide. Let an economic crash come. Our God will provide. God will make a way where there is no way. Let the communists take over America. Our God will provide a way. But the key is that you need to know God. And when you know him, you'll have the confidence to obey him. And Jesus always has a plan. God always has a plan. When you get up to the Red Sea, God's always got a way to open up the Red Sea. You might not even know what he's going to do, but God has got a way. He's the God that makes a way where there is no way. So so does that encourage you to know God tonight? Every time you look at the word, make it your prayer to know him. And take those prayers that that I listed there. Put those on your prayer list and and start praying those. and, And God will begin to reveal himself to you. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.